Welcome to Five Things About. I'm Chris Hatzis. Five Things About is for you and your inner curious cat. The part of you that just loves to know what others know about inventions and ideas, people and places. In each episode, we'll meet experts who will share five insights from their field of work. Five balls of yarn for us to play with. You've heard the proverb, curiosity killed the cat. The rest of the proverb is, but satisfaction brought it back. So go on, knock yourself out and bring yourself back. Today, we explore five things about 3D printing. When was the concept of 3D printing first born? And how much of a gimmick or a game changer is it? Your host today is Kate Murray from the Melbourne Network Society Institute. She'll be your five things tour guide. Robbie Fordyce and Luke Heemsbergen are two PhD candidates who began researching 3D printing practices at the University of Melbourne and furthered their research through ACAN, the Australian Communications Consumer Action Network. Together, they've built the 3DPI website that, according to the tagline, is everything you need to get started in 3D printing. So, Robbie, is 3D printing a new concept? There's been a long history over the course of human civilization in using technology to create new things. And if we think back quite a long way, can think to the early technological looms, such as the Jacquard loom from several centuries ago. These were sort of effectively very early computers, but they're also very early 3D printers. So we've had this history of using uh, technology to make things for quite some time. If we fast forward to more recent developments, the, the 3D printing technology itself was developed in the uh, early 1980s uh, by researchers based in both the US and in Japan. What's really sort of forging things ahead these days, however, is the change in consumer practices and uh, sort of experts who are getting involved in creating this technology to be used by people in the home. So what we've been really interested in the, uh, in, in the course of our research has been the way in which everyday people have been taking up the, this new technology and using it in, in their homes to do uh, new and different things. And one of the really important things that we see emerging from uh, people using this technology is the fact that they're prepared to share the, the things that they make and how they make them with other people so that people aren't just making things by themselves in their own homes, they're actually sharing the way that you do that and the tools that you can use to do that with other people around the world. So if I understand that right, the technology that led to 3D printing actually has a centuries-old origin? The ideas behind algorithmically controlling manufacture are very, very old. Um, so as, as Robbie pointed out, that's the Jacquard loom. Um, patents about turning 2D representations of objects into 3D, rep 3D objects um, are, are also quite old. They, they date from the kind of the 18th century and there's ways to do that. Sorry, 19th century. And there's ways, you know, ways to go about that that weren't computerized, obviously. But those, those ideas of how to manufacture, um, one, algorithmically, and two, from a 2D schematic to a 3D object are not new. Computerization um, was a big leap. Um, and then the, this, the idea of, I guess we can say, social manufacture, or the idea of decentralizing that manufacture um, is, is also unique. Now, although I've heard a lot about 3D printing and I've seen it in the news, I don't actually know anyone who owns a 3D printer. How are people getting involved in this process? 
it's got a lot of different ways in which people uh, actually encounter the technology. Uh, one of the ones that we're sort of seeing, particularly in uh, people post-university, is that people who are interested in either some sort of existing sort of cultural practice, like they're involved in uh, art workshops, they're an artist themselves, or they're perhaps involved in some sort of uh, geek culture, they're finding um, 3D printing as a, way, a, a new way for them to engage in that culture that they're already a part of. So they're able to create new costumes, create new props, create artworks with an entirely new form of manufacturing technology which is allowing them to do things that they couldn't previously uh, really do with uh, other practices. I think artist experimentation with 3D printing is actually really fascinating and something uh, we haven't actually looked at a lot but um, there's great examples of artists who are using 3D printers to create structures, devices, um, forms that were literally impossible to make with other manufacturing processes. This has led to new types of artistic expression uh, which is really cool. On that note, what are the most popular objects for 3D printing? Because I know that Warhammer plays a role. Yeah, so it's really hard to tell exactly what is the most popular thing uh, for 3D printing for the most part, simply because there's such a huge range of material out there to print that nothing sort of necessarily stands up too much above anything else. Um, And it can be quite hard to sort of work out exactly what kind of practices are most common. However, one of the things that we've found that people are really interested in printing uh, is mobile phone cases, so cases for their uh, mobile phones, which they can customize in various ways, stick their name on them, stick a picture on it, uh, or make it look like a um, some sort of other kind of thing, like a set of gears and so on. Another thing that we've seen people having a lot of interest in is making what are called uh, lithopanes, which are sort of images uh, cast onto a flat piece of plastic that can be put up on someone's window and when the light shines through it, it makes an image appear. And Robbie was actually instrumental in finding this out um, through really designing our our research practice of doing a social network analysis, not of people, 3D printers, but actually of objects that are being printed on the largest uh, 3D printing website online that shares different designs. So we looked at um, close to a million different objects, uh, how popular they were, how many times they were remixed um, or or shared, printed, etc. And these are some of the patterns that emerged. And you're talking about sharing ideas here. So their designs aren't bought and sold? To think on this issue of sort of sharing, it's a really complex of situation. Yes, there is a lot of capacity for people to share stuff uh, individually, there's no requirement to charge anyone for money for any any design that you um, create and put up online. But equally, uh, a lot of people are charging for access to designs, and it really depends on what people are trying to print. And there's a whole variety of emerging models around that. And some sites online, you'll find both where you can you can sh- share freely. I mean, and there's a whole a whole list of Creative Commons um, intellectual property licenses you can choose from for your own design. But then on that same site, you'll be you'll be able to just stream an object for a lesser price. So if you want the actual um, design that you can modify and tweak, you'll pay one cost. If you just want to send it straight to your printer, so you get um, the end result but you don't have 
I would say ownership of uh, of Remix over it, or you can't change it, um, then you know you don't have to pay as much. And I mean that's just one example, but a whole lot of different uh, market mechanisms and sharing mechanisms, like economic mechanisms, are emerging through again this manufacturing process that that is that is different in terms of how it's set up um, than than those that came before. If users are sharing for free and expecting to get these services for free, well, what does that mean for current economic distribution systems? So some of the economic distribution questions that come up um, start with supply chain. Right now, supply chains are managed in a very specific way where economies of scale, i.e. large runs from large factories of um, a one specific object is the way to go uh, for efficiency's sake. Um, 3D printing might change that, but not in the kind, I would say, not in the revolutionary way that maybe it, it gets talked about in the, you know, in the Star Trek way, and that um, 3D printing is not great at making one thing a million times. It's great at making a million things one time. Um, and that's kind of this fundamental mindset that changes. Um, some of the research we're looking into now going forward is thinking about things um, like orthopedics and other kind of orthotics that, that go into medical practice. Um, where you know there's an individual customization that's required some of the most successful 3d printing um, consumer items outside of uh, consumer items outside of just consumers making things but in industry um, are things like hearing aids um, and, and 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 various structures that dentists use now um, because this requires a customization so in the same way that the internet brought mass customization of information, everyone has their own blog, their own, et cetera, et cetera, 3D printing brings mass customization for material, material goods. So how that changes the, you know, the setup of economics um, is really anyone's guess at this point, but there's a lot of different models out there that we can speak to where the supply chain still matters, um, but the customization and individual um, individual needs are met in timely and in different ways from much more regionalized or decentralized places. One of the things that makes um, 3D printing change the way in which the supply chain works uh, is in terms of the way that individuals tend to be given more responsibility but you know, accordingly take more liability on themselves in terms of what they're producing uh, and the sort of quality of that object. So what Luke's describing is the the way that you know some companies are increasingly being able to create products that then the the purchaser has to go away and create additional components to uh, with their own three D printing that customize their object so it either fits on their body or works in their home or you know other situations like that. Um, in terms of this, this means that the user themselves is the person who's creating. Uh, the object, uh, they're designing it for their body, which means that they are necessarily taking responsibility for, for the conditions of that object. So if it uh, ends up breaking or causing uh, problems for them in their home, it's that they've taken that responsibility on themselves. And Robbie's absolutely right in that what we found when we, we've looked at how case law in different jurisdictions, not just only in Australia, uh, is that risk is often directed towards the individual users of 3D printed goods for a variety of reasons. Um, some of those reasons are just jurisdictional. If you know, I've printed my 3D um, orthotic, but the design was made from someone in Singapore, um, you know, 
based off a, a patented process that was you know thought up in the Netherlands um, and the material came from China it's actually becomes quite hard to, to find a path of liability um, so and then and then I mean on top of that those are kind of the material concerns on top of that you have um, the software layer where all of the terms of service, the terms and conditions of these websites where people find design files uh, blatantly put risk back towards the user. And sometimes sometimes in, in apparent contravention to Australian consumer law, um, where we get into this where we get into the situation where Australian law is is necessary for three D printers to think about, but it's not sufficient to understand um, user experience online. All right, we'll change track a little bit. A lot of the learning around 3D printing seems to be trial and error. So making something and then throwing it away if it doesn't work, and the materials are mostly plastic. So I'm wondering what happens to the discarded printed designs? Can they be recycled? The complex answer is it depends, and it really does. the the 3D printing industry, I think, is getting better and better and trying to find materials that they can um, recycle and, and reuse. Um, and this the re- recycling and reusing materials um, comes not only from plastics, but from um, new printers that use consumer printers that use metals. That some will that will even use glass. Uh, glass is something that's much more recyclable than in, than the other two materials. So that will that will help as well. Um, but the reality is that, as, as you pointed out, 3D printing is a, a manufacturing process. It's not like hitting print on, you know, on the laser writer. Um, it's more like taking out a lathe or a drill and seeing what can be created. Um, the computer does you know, the, the, the finicky work, but the reality is messy. You need an industrial space rather than a kitchen countertop in most instances. Um, and there is waste. I'd say there's actually two things we need to think about when we um, talk about waste in 3D printing. One is this idea of uh, conspicuous consumption that we're used to, especially in the digital age. Uh, Right now, if you want a new song, you click and you get it. And you click and you get another song and another song. You watch 15 YouTube videos before you get up in the morning. Um, If we take that logic of digital goods being infinitely copable and distributable and watchable, usable, uh, and apply that that to to the material world, we're going to have a lot of stuff. Um, So that's the one thing. The other side of that is that 3D printing is very efficient in terms of its actual manufacturing process. The amount of material it uses to create the structures it does is extremely efficient. Um, And the ways that you can prototype objects through 3D printing is extremely efficient compared to old ways where you needed to make casts or molds and try that object out and then make another cast or mold and try that object out. So um, applying the logics of the digital economy where we want anything and everything all the time and we get it to the material world can have you know environmental impacts that we need to think through that being said 3d printing as a manufacture process is very in itself very efficient and there's great strides being made towards how uh, we can recycle things that we've printed or we can take other materials everything from um, chip bags to old shoes or tires and turn that into material to print So you mentioned metal and glass, and we've talked about plastic, but what other materials are being used in 3D printing? For example, if I want to continue drinking Scotch whiskey at the rate that I enjoy, will I one day be able to print a new liver? 
<laughs> Regardless, yes, you can <laughs> drink scotch whiskey at the rate you enjoy. Yeah, there are a lot of different things that you can print uh, through a 3D printer. Obviously, different types of material require their own specialized 3D printer. You can't expect to print something using a fine plastic powder and then go away and print something uh, out of chocolate using the same machine. What, what ha- tends to happen is that for these uh, different ma- machines, they have like a very specialized purpose for them. So there are chocolate printing 3D printers. There they have a nozzle that works at a temperature that works with melted chocolate quite nicely. Uh, there are other printers that print in things such as pizza sauce, cheese, uh, glass, plastic, metal, and so on. Um, but in terms of the medical stuff, I'll just leave that for Luke because he's been doing a bit of research on that recently. Maybe one way to think about the different materials of 3D printing and whether we can print our own livers is that um, it, it, it really depends on a different industrial scale or, or manufacturing scale between what I can print at home and what um, a hospital might be able to print with the much more expensive printers that exist there. Um, so yes, people are printing um, you know, bio lattices that they hope to grow organs with at some point in the future. Um, and, you know, we've, we've, we might have seen work of someone printing a, a, um, the lattice again of, a, of an ear that actually was implanted on top of a mouse. And then the mouse's um, biological systems fill in that ear so that it can be transplanted to a human. I mean, those things can exist and the manufacturing process of 3D printing is used. But that's very different from the box you and I would have in our house um, that might print glass or might print plastic or metal in the in the near future um, so I think the the complex as the complexity increases and especially as we go towards the bioprinting um, that's going to stay in a more centralized place for much longer than the widgets um, to fix your dishwasher or make sure your you know your couch or chair doesn't wobble that kind of thing that you can print at home Now, when laser printers first came out, we had problems with people printing money and we had to come up with solutions to stop that. What copyright or patent problems have arisen from 3D printing and what are some of the possible solutions? The counterfeit money example from from laser writers color you know color copiers when they first came out is actually really interesting um because if, if you just if, if we apply that to pr- 3d printing because we can look at that history and you know maybe make some assumptions or some insights about what will come next for color copiers what happened was at first people were very happy they could print their own money so it seemed then the idea was policy wise well we should restrict copiers from being able to print money Um, This didn't sit well and wasn't really feasible because there's all kinds of different money and money might change and maybe we don't want it to print the $50 bill, um, but maybe we then decide we don't want it to print a Rembrandt or print someone else's intellectual property. It was very hard from a policy perspective to decide and then implement what people could and could could and couldn't print where. You have to contact each of the printing manufacturers or have those printers connected to the internet and say, you can't print this file, you can't print something that looks like this file, it just wasn't going to work. What happened was that um, to combat counterfeit currency, um, the US government actually talked to the printer manufacturers and said, look, um, for for all those reasons outlined, we can't really tell people what to print or not to print. What we're going to do is we're going to embed a secret design that's barely visible in everything your printers print. 
and each printer is going to print a specific fingerprint, if you will, of that design on their page. Imperceptible to the human eye, but machine readable so that if anyone prints out something, whether it be, I mean, anything from money to, you know, an illicit image that shouldn't have been printed, child pornography, something like that, um, that image can be traced to a specific printer. So then you trace the printer to who bought it and you can find out who's, right, doing the printing. Um, so that's how that, that's how that policy problem was handled in the 2D space. In the 3D space, um, there's already you know, various iterations or, or experiments of what that would look like in terms of um, printing processes, putting some kind of fingerprint on, on um, objects that are out, outputted by printers. Um, but maybe, Robbie, do you have anything mm. else to say with that? The thing that made the imperceptible 2D fingerprint uh, for printers was the fact that every single machine was produced by a company uh, in control of how that technology worked uh, that had very specific demands um, from the government uh, in terms of how how that would work. Now the thing about 3D printing is that it's actually possible to use a 3D printer to create your own 3D printer. Most of the parts uh, that you necessarily need you can print, the few additional parts you can just easily buy from a hardware store. What this means is that 3D printers might not necessarily actually have those regulatory controls built into them, which means, uh, and this has sort of resulted in this concern around uh, 3D printing as a, a regulatory uh, intellectual property kind of concern, it also uh, connects to the concerns around 3D printing uh, in terms of 3D printed guns uh, and other sorts of illicit contraband that people want to or expect to be controlled by the state. What this means is that uh, 3D printing presents a possibility of an unregulated market space. However, along, along the way, what needs to be recognized is the fact that a 3D printed 3D printer is not necessarily going to be as accurate as a manufactured one from a uh, high-end company. So we've got this situation where people are perhaps uh, expecting uh, con a 3D printed content to be more controlled than it is, while at the same time that product isn't maybe necessarily as much of a threat or an issue as people might expect. Um, nonetheless, there are a number of quite interesting sort of legal regulatory concerns that are emerging uh, in the sort of discourses around 3D printing that create a sort of unique uh, emerging uh, legal situation in the future. Listeners can learn more about 3D printing on your website, which is? Which is 3dprintinginfo.org. And the website is really geared not only to giving consumers uh, a head start into the manufacturing process, but the kind of ecology or economy that surrounds it. We've also got a number of reports on there for those who are interested in perhaps uh, investigating what they could do for their own uh, educational curriculums around 3D printing. So perhaps uh, think about checking that stuff out as well. So there you have it. Mechanical weaving looms, plastic guns, the second industrial revolution, they all have one thing that links them. The story of 3D printing. Thanks to Kate Murray, Luke Heemsbergen and Robbie Fordyce from the Melbourne Network Society Institute. This podcast was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded in January 2017. Producers were Kate Murray, Andy Horvath and audio engineering and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. The Five Things About podcast is a University of Melbourne training program created by Dr. Andy Horvath. Still curious? Nip over to our other podcasts, Up Close and Eavesdrop on Experts, 
for more.